The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. If you have your Bibles, which I hope you do, open them up to the book of Isaiah and the Old Testament, one of the larger books of the prophets, Isaiah chapter 59. We've only got a few more weeks left um, in the book of Isaiah, but been walking through it for a good while now. Um, I normally uh, preach on a Wednesday evening in a sport coat. For those of you who are worried and concerned, I have prayed for forgiveness and extra grace that I may be able to deliver the Word of God still without it tonight because I'm going to blame it on my children. Crazy hair night, we were rushing out the door. Not really, I just forgot it. I left it on the dining room table and I'm not turning around to go get it. So bear with me, forgive me for this evening. But God's Word is still His Word and I pray it makes an impact upon your heart and upon your life tonight. Um, the power of the Word of God to speak into our hearts and to our lives. We're looking at a book that even out of the books of the Bible is a really, really old book within the Bible. Uh, old Testament book, and yet what we're going to see tonight in this chapter, what I want us to be reminded of for many of us, and maybe for some of you, just kind of looking around even the few of you that may even be newer with us tonight, it may be something new to you um, that... that Though it is what our, you know, the New Testament church is founded upon, uh, what Christianity itself rests upon, uh, you may never have heard a clear presentation of the truth that we're going to look to tonight. We're really going to see the gospel, uh, even the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, as it was prophesied through Isaiah uh, in this chapter, Isaiah 59. It, it is a hard chapter in a large way because it really... It ought to make us aware of our sinfulness. And even what I like to call the sinfulness of our sinfulness. That so often we don't realize just how bad our sin really is. Uh, so often we, we like to think of ourselves as much better than we are. And we like to think of humanity even as a whole as much better than it is when the reality is. If we just examine it very much at all, uh, we, we find we are far from what we ought to. As a, a general understanding of humanity and all that's done, and even individually as we look at our own lives, and we truly examine our own lives, even in a relative way to, to one another and to what our idea of justice and righteousness is, much less when we actually get a sight of a holy God who is perfect in all His ways, who is infinitely holy, then all of a sudden we really got an issue, we really got a problem. Isaiah 59 was written, as many other chapters even in Isaiah have been, to draw Israel's attention to the reason for the condition, the situation that they're going to be brought in, which is the Babylonian captivity. That God is going to let a foreign nation come into His promised land filled with His promised people and, and literally lay the place flat, destroy Jerusalem, Many will, many did die when that captivity, when that war occurred, when Babylon, the Babylonians came in with all the might of their army. And unlike many times before when God had miraculously intervened to deliver His people, God this time was not going to deliver them. And God let them, um, God let them be defeated. God let many of them die in that war. God let many of them that were left, all of them basically, just a small remnant that remained, majority of them that remained alive were led back as slaves into the land of Babylon. It was a 
judgment God brought upon His people because of their constant, hard-hearted, rebellious sin against Him. They had neglected the law. They were doing so much that was sinful and wrong. So many injustices committed. Um, So many, the the mistreatment of the poor and the weak, uh, the abuse of power from the rich and those in control, the immorality that crept in, the idolatry even of worshiping other pagan gods, so so much that the people of God no longer looked like the people of God. They were in total uh, disregard, ignoring the law that God had given and His ways and His commands. And and Isaiah has been given a message of warning, this judgment's coming. And even writing to those who would endure that judgment, directing prophecy directly towards them, that in that moment, especially when they are walking through that that day of wondering, where is God? And why has God left us? Why is God not answering us? Why has God let us be defeated? This book, in part, is written for them to understand it all and hopefully to be drawn back to God and to realize they must repent, they must turn from their sin, and they must turn to God and find, as God promises over and over and over again, as we'll see tonight, that He's a God of mercy. And He's a God of grace. That when the sinner comes to see the sinfulness of their sin, and they turn from that sin, they confess, they they repent, that He is a God who is ready and even desiring to forgive and to work a means for their redemption, we're going to see, so that they may be forgiven, and then even restore them. And give them a a greater blessing than they've ever could imagine, never have deserved, never have earned, of His grace and mercy, not only forgiving, but but restoring and blessing and and bringing them to a place of of communion with Himself once again that that they never deserve because of their depravity, because of their sinfulness. And so it is the Gospel message that we will see. I want us to read the chapter in full, and then we're going to walk back through some key elements of the chapter that I hope you realize tonight. Uh, Romans 3 parallels this chapter very much so, which we'll, we'll hint at a little tonight and see the parallel. That, that you realize this is not just speaking of Israel and their sin. And Paul takes this and he says, this is really every one of us. This is every fallen, sinful human being on planet Earth. Uh, so let's, let's read it and then walk back through it this evening. Isaiah 59. Behold, the hand of the Lord is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor is His ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from God, and your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perversities. No one calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. They trust in empty words and speak lies. They receive evil and bring forth iniquity. They hatch vipers' eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies, and from that which is crushed, a viper breaks out. Their webs will not become garments, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are the works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are the thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. 
The way of peace they have not known. And there is no justice in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. Verse 9. Therefore justice is far from us, nor does righteousness overtake us. We look for light, but there is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in blackness. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as at twilight. We are as dead men in desolate places. We all growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We look for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you. Capital Y, speaking of God. And our sins, they testify against us. For our transgressions are with us. And as for our iniquities, we know them. In transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off for truth has fallen in the street and equity cannot enter. So truth fails. and He who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Then the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore his own arm brought salvation for him and his own righteousness. It sustained him, for he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with the zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, accordingly he will repay. Fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, the coastlands he will full repay. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes in like the flood, like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. The Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them. My spirit who is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth nor from the mouth of your descendants nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord from this time and forevermore. Notice first this evening the need for conviction. The need for the conviction of sin. That that we in and of ourselves are so, so clever so able to justify our wickedness. We're so able to gain this sort of perception of a a relative morality where we can say, well, you know, I'm not doing those things, so I'm not really that bad. I can always find somebody worse who's done worse than I've done, and we can seek to justify ourselves on the basis of what other people have done that maybe we haven't gone as far in doing. And, And we also can just seek to make ourselves look better as we we think of the wrong that others have done, where we say, well, we're not as bad as them. Our our moral compass, we have no real standard of righteousness in and of ourselves. And and the world around us, and we in our lostness without a word from God that we're about to talk about, 
we have a great way of fooling ourselves into thinking, well, we're just okay. You know, we're just kind of maybe even neutral or a little bit. If we can do good, we're, we're going to be all right. And the reality is, if we really examine our, our lives, especially when the Word of God comes to bear upon our life, sheds the light of God's holiness upon our lives, what we see is we do not at all measure up. <laughs> that we are depraved. That, that we are sinners in deserving of condemnation from a, a, a just and a holy God. Israel was going to be put in a place in judgment where through the, the judgment of God, they would come to see out of their blindness just how sinful they really were, just how far that they had truly drifted from the Lord. All, all the things that they would turn to in that hour of need as they sought deliverance from these idols and from you know their strength and power, all of these idol things that they were turning to would fail them, and they, in a way, would be put on their backs with the breath knocked out of them, where they would have no choice but to look up. But to turn back to the Lord, and, and Isaiah is addressing them, lest they think God failed them in that hour, lest they think that God was unable to, to do anything different. He wasn't powerful enough. His arm was too short or his ear too deaf to hear the needs of his people. Isaiah begins in verse 1, and he says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. But the problem here doesn't lie with God. Isaiah is saying the problem's with you. It's not that God is unable to deliver, and it's not that God has withdrawn Himself from you. It's not that God cannot save and His hand is, is short. He can't, he can't intervene or intercede for His people, nor His ear heavy that it cannot hear. It's not that He's got you know, earwax built up in his ears, and even as you cry out to him, he just can't hear you. He's going deaf up in heaven. That's not the, the reason that God is not intervening and delivering and, and saving in this moment. Isaiah says in verse 2 quite clearly, but it's your iniquities that have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not that when you try to come as a, a sinner in your sin, and a sinner in your sin sinning, and you think and you wonder, well, goodness, God is just failing me, or God is not hearing me, and, and the, the tendency is we put the blame on God, when the reality is, the truth of the situation is, the blame is all on us. The blame was all on Israel because of their sin and their idolatry, because of their iniquity. God was not intervening. God was not hearing their prayers that they were praying because they were saying a prayer unto God while they were living in a way that was in total contradiction to what God has commanded for them. They were living in their sin, and they were enjoying the pleasures of their sin, and they were getting mad at God for not blessing them in the midst of their sin. Goodness, does that sound like a world around us today? We want to do what we want. We want to do how, how we want to do it with whoever we want to do it. And we want to justify ourselves as right in all of those actions, no matter what God has declared in His righteousness. And then we get mad at God because it doesn't work out for us. Because we don't get the blessing that we think we ought to have from Him in our life. And He doesn't answer our prayers exactly as we think He ought to answer them. The truth of the matter is your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins 
hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. God was not the problem, verses 1 and 2 are telling us. Their sin was the problem. Then in verses 3 through 8, there's this partly imagery that's brought in that we'll talk about of a viper's egg and a spider's web, but a a very descriptive um, indictment against Israel for their sin. And again, verses 7 and 8 in particular are quoted in Romans chapter 3, verses 15, 16, and 17. And Paul draws a correlation that, guess what? Just as they're sinners, so are you. So am I. Let's just walk through again this list of sins. For your hands are defiled with blood, uh, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, the tongue has muttered perversities. To, to think of the filthiness of language, the things that can come out of a human being, um, the, the work of the, the fingers, even the shedding of innocent blood. No one calls for justice. No one cares about what is truly right in the eyes of a holy God. Uh, everything's about how we can get away with whatever we can get away with, to do whatever we want, to gain a little bit more money, to gain a little bit more power, nor does anyone plead for truth. They, ju- uh, they trust in empty words and they speak lies, conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. And then they hatch vipers' eggs and weave spiders' webs. This this imagery here of, of first viper snake eggs that if you think of as they, 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 they look innocent, they, they, except you take them and they're, they're, they're incubating them and they're, they're, they're letting them come to the place of even hatching and they bring about death. All, all the works of their, of, 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 of their life are, are like viper's eggs that start as this form of something that doesn't seem all that bad, but when the, when the whole thing comes about, they're, they're snake eggs. Snakes come out. The end of verse 5, vipers break out from that which is crushed. Those who eat of their eggs surely die. The, the, the sin that they're committing has grave consequences. And people think in this day and age, I can sin. And I don't even call it sin. I can just do what I want, when I want, however I want. I'm, I'm, you know, the one who's in charge of my life. Who are you to tell me what I ought to be or how I ought to do it? And they think that they can do these things and not have any consequences. When it comes to human sexuality in our day and age, my goodness, and the way that our world around us today thinks we can make anything of anything that we want, and we can deny human biology, and we can deny the the plan of God even in creation of one man and one woman and a lifelong covenant relationship called marriage, in in what no one wants to shine any light upon is the, the, the viper's egg that that is. That when the, the fruit of that sin brings forth the product of what it produces, it, 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 it's painful, it's death, it's sin, it's devastating, it, there, there's consequences to it all. And we are heading down that more and more a, a pathway of, of a further regression away from God's design within our culture that will lead us into greater blindness and greater darkness and greater pain and greater hurt and greater depression, greater psychological confusion that even secular Secular studies are evidencing, but no one sheds light upon it. If you do, you're you know, ostracized as a narrow-minded bigot of an archaic age. And yet, the truth is the truth, and God's Word is the truth, that as we sin, sin has consequences. That which breaks out of it is a snake that bites and that kills. The spider's web that's being woven, you think of how a spider so intricately works what flows out of it to form 
becomes this, this intricate web that, that does not close. <laughs> he says it does not, they, 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 uh, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their webs will not become garments. The, their works, verse 6, uh, are works of iniquity and the acts of violence in their hands. It's actually something that will catch them in it, that doesn't clothe their nakedness, that doesn't clothe their, their shame. All the toil of sin, all the works of one's life that are not in obedience to the Lord. Verse 7, their feet run to evil. Not just getting caught up in it, but running to evil. And they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts the, are the thoughts of iniquity, wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they have not known, and there's no justice in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths. And whoever takes that way shall not know peace. For the wicked, there is no peace, we looked at at the end of chapter 57. Though they long for it, though they desire it, if you do it your way, you'll never find it. True peace is only found in the Lord and a right relationship with Him. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 says, For the Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes uh, to him who we must give account. When God speaks, you realize it's a gracious act of God. When God tells Israel a description of their sin, it's a gracious act of God that, that he may bring them to conviction, that his word may open our eyes up to the sinfulness of sin. That His Word even tonight may open your eyes up to the sinfulness of your own sin. I told you Romans chapter 3, Paul quotes these words in verses 15 through 17. He quotes verses 7 and 8, parts of it, uh, of this chapter in Isaiah 59 to apply not just to Israel, but to every human being. And he, he begins even in the, earlier in that chapter, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All we have gone astray. Everyone's turned to His own way. We're, we're all sinners condemned before a holy God. The Word of God, it's a gracious act of God that He speaks to, to give us that description of our sinfulness, that we, we have a standard of righteousness now. We, we, we hopefully, by His Word, can come to see we don't measure up to what we ought to be. Deep down inside, every one of you tonight know that. You just examine your life at all. You're not what you should be. If you were to stand before a court, and that court were to examine your life, I'm not talking about the facade of your life, the little picture that you present to everybody else, but I'm talking about every little intricate detail of your life, every thought, every word, everything from your childhood all the way to where you are now. Do you really think you could stand before a court of human judges and say, I am totally innocent and perfect? Anybody? No. Much less God Almighty who doesn't need a court of jurors because he knows it all. He's seen every everything. He knows the thoughts of your mind, the words on your tongue before they're even spoken. Do you really think you can stand in your own self justified before the holy God of all the universe? The Bible says no, you can't. You're a sinner. And he gives us this word from, from him that, that we may come to see and understand that, that we are sinners in need of salvation. It's meant to spur us to uh, uh, to, to conviction, to work within us, to, to uh, conviction to say, I, I am a sinner. Goodness, I'm not what I ought to be. 
This word through Isaiah is meant to lead Israel to understand that, that they're, they're not what they should have been, that they transgressed against God Almighty, that they're a people of iniquity and, and people of viper's eggs and of spider webs in all of their works, and they need, they need change, they need forgiveness, they need redemption, they need salvation. The conviction of sin first. We see a transition in verse 9. Confession of sin. The need for confession. Notice verse 9 changes tenses. It goes to the the first person here in in verse 9. Therefore, justice is far from us. There's now a confession being made. In light of God's revelation of the sinfulness of their sin, they come to confess their sin before God. Confession is being made here. What does it mean to confess? It means ultimately, to put it simply, to say the same thing as. So, to say the same thing that God has said about your sin and about your sinfulness. That's what it means to confess your sin before the Lord. To no longer try to justify it and make it look good and explain it away, but come to a point in life where you come to accept what God says about you and accept what God has said about your sin. And not only accept it, but realize it's true. Come to believe it is truth. I am a sinner condemned before God. Therefore, he says, justice is far from us, nor does righteousness overtake us. We're not, we're not righteous in and of ourselves. We look for light, but there is darkness. There's something within us in the image of God that makes us want to be better than we are. We have this idea of righteousness, but none of us measure up to it. For brightness, but we walk in blackness. We grope for the wall like the blind. Think of that. Think of a blind person walking through even this facility, not knowing it and trying to figure out what is it, what is this, where am I, where am I going, where's the door to walk through. We are blind in our sins and in our transgressions. We grope as if we had no eyes through this life. We stumble at noonday as at twilight. We are as dead men in desolate places. There's a word of blessed encouragement for you tonight. You without God, you and your sin, you're like a dead man in a desolate place. A dead man rotting away in a desert. We all growl like bears. We moan sadly like doves. We look for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it's far from us. Your greatest need tonight is not going to be found in better education or in financial equality or an equality of power or a deconstruction of the social constructs that are all around us. And if we can just get rid of what everybody thinks we ought to be, then we'll finally have peace and you know salvation and life. We just need to destroy all of all the social constructs, all everybody, anybody telling us what we ought to be or how we ought to do life. Those are the philosophies of the world, and they, they leave everyone who follows down them just as broken, just as empty, just as messed up, like a bear growling, like a dove muttering a sad song, like a blind man walking down a hallway, like a dead man rotting in the grave in a desolate place. That is what we are in our sin. We want salvation, but we don't know how to find it because we can't find it in and of ourselves. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, holy God. Our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us. And as for our iniquities, we know them. 
and transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far off. The truth is fallen in the street and equity cannot enter. So truth fails and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Even the one there in that day and age in that culture, even the one who departs from doing wicked, it says makes himself a prey. They become a target. And goodness, are we getting more and more unfortunately like this sort of culture to where there is even one who would righteously follow after the Lord. They become prey in the culture. We are sinners in need of conviction. We are sinners in need of confession. But the confession alone does not undo the wrong. Uh, the confession is, is, a, is a part of, of coming to God, but confession isn't enough. That when we confess our sin before, the, before God, that doesn't undo the wrong that we've committed. You realize that, right? Coming to see the wrong that you've done and confessing the wrong that you've done still doesn't undo the wrong that you've done. We are in need still of a greater work that confession by the grace of God leads to, and that is where verse 15b through verse 20 come into play. God is so gracious and merciful. That what comes next is our need of redemption. He sends a Redeemer to do for Israel what Israel could not do for themselves. He sends a Redeemer who what He does for Israel, get this, understand this, is not only for Israel and the sins of Israel, but is actually for you and for me and for all who come to Him, for all who turn from their sin to the Lord. This work of the suffering servant of the Lord prophesied in Isaiah 53 that this chapter is ultimately looking back to, the one who will come whose name is Jesus Christ, who dies upon a cross for the sins not only of Israel, dies upon that cross for the sins of the world. This is speaking for Israel, yes, and even a future day of redemption that's still going to come for ethnic Israel, yes. But, but hear me, it's, it's, it's mysteriously been unfolded for whosoever will through this new covenant, through Christ coming and dying upon a cross for the sins of Israel, yes. But in that also for the sins of all humanity, for the sins of the world. It says, Then the Lord saw it, and it displeased Him that there was no justice. God saw His people in their sin, and it displeased Him. And He was moved to even pity to intervene for them by His own self. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. There was none that could stand up to deliver His people from their sin. They were totally depraved. They were unable to save themselves. Therefore, His own arm brought salvation for Him. He did for them what they could not do for themselves. And His own righteousness, it sustained Him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on His head, and He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with the zeal as a cloak. And now we're, we're, if you remember, I don't have enough time to go into this in depth, but if you remember in the Old Testament, especially through the book of Isaiah, there's what's called... Uh, the prophetic oh, foreshortening, I think is the term that we use, where the first and second coming of Jesus were viewed as one. And they did not realize and could not make sense of passages that dealt with Jesus, the Messiah, coming to suffer in the place of sinners, and then Jesus coming to condemn all who were the enemies of God, all who remained in their, their sin, all who remained hard-hearted in rebellion against God. 
And here we see the two sort of intermingled even, an act of God in His first coming, uh, of Jesus coming to die upon a cross for the sins of the world, but then His second coming, coming in that time to judge, to bring vengeance upon the sinners who do not repent, who do not turn. That is yet to come at the second coming of the Lord. He says, according to their deeds, accordingly He will repay fury to His adversaries, recompense to His enemies, the coastlands He will fully repay. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and His glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. Even the righteousness of Christ will be that standard. The Redeemer will come. Now let me stop there as I would go back now in verse 20 to even the first coming and then what will be totally fulfilled in the second coming. God, God will judge sinners. But when sinners remain in their sin hard-hearted and rebellious against God, judgment will come. A holy God has no other option as a just God but to condemn that. But to pour out condemnation and wrath upon that. And there will be an end where Jesus returns and the sinner will be judged. And there is even eternal damnation for sinners that die in their sin and in hard-hearted rebellion against God who never repent and turn to the Redeemer, turn to the Savior that God has provided. Uh, the glory of the Lord will be known from the rising of the sun, everywhere the sun shines. Revelation paints that picture even of a new heaven and new earth that is to come. Uh, there's a millennial kingdom that will happen before that time even, where God, I believe, will restore ethnic Israel and fulfill all of these covenant promises in an earthly way with ethnic Israel. God will vindicate His name. God will judge the enemies that stand against Him. The coastlands, that would be the areas where the people had totally rejected God and served idols. He will fully repay. Recompense will come to His enemies. The sinner will pay the recompense of their, their actions, the just payment that is deserved for the actions that they have taken. Judgment shall come, but verse 20, the Redeemer will come to Zion, to the city of God. The Redeemer, the one who can take sinners and justify them before holy God. And to those who turn from transgression, for those that come under the conviction of their sin and confess their sin before God, who repent, who turn from their transgression to the Lord and Jacob, God will give this Redeemer, the one who saves, the one who can forgive, the one who can restore them. And then we get to verse 20 which then talks about not only redemption, but the restoration that God will bring through the Redeemer. As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them. My spirit is, uh, will be upon you, and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord, from this time and forevermore. That God will fulfill, fulfill the perfect righteousness in us that's not of us, Christ, it's His righteousness that He gives graciously and mercifully that someday will be fully ours. And we will totally be what God desires us to be. We will totally have that perfect communion with God once again because of the Redeemer and the work of this Redeemer upon us. And He will put His Spirit in us, even as He has now. And His Word will be in us. And there will be a complete complete fulfillment of all that Christ saved us to be upon Calvary will be brought into complete perfection in us. 
and in God's people, even Israel. I want to close with Romans chapter 3. Because I know by Paul's quotation of this chapter, he had Isaiah 59 in mind, if not opened up to it, as he penned the words in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, if you look to verses 15 through 17, those are quotations from Isaiah 59. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. And and that's following this uh, truth that he's delivering that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Whether you're Jew or a Greek, it says at the end of verse 9, you're all under sin. We're all sinners condemned before a holy God. But notice how he continues in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. The law of God, even His Word through the Old Covenant, that brought about an awareness of the sinfulness of sin, the conviction of sin. We saw a righteous standard of God revealed even through the Ten Commandments. We'll just sum it up at that even. Uh, We even still look to the Ten Commandments as a righteous revelation from God of what we ought to be and what we're not. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. We come to know through all of that that we're not what we ought to be. That was never given in order that we may somehow within us come up with a means of fulfilling that and obeying that to the degree that we redeem ourselves. That's not, that's not possible. No matter what we do, we can never undo the sin that we are, the, the sin that we are, the sin that we've committed. But now, he says in verse 21, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets, and Isaiah even. Even the righteousness of God, a righteousness that is not of us, tainted by sin and imperfection, but this is a perfect righteousness, a righteousness that is from above, that we can't can't earn or even attain in and of ourselves. How does it come? It comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, Jew or Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He is the Redeemer who can restore us, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at this present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God does not look down and forgive you and forgive me with nothing there that's actually there to redeem us. As if He unjustly picks His favorites and says, well, I'm going to overlook your sin and just pretend it didn't happen when it really did happen. No, He would be unjust if He just pretended it didn't happen. What does God do? He sends a Redeemer. He looks down and sees the plight of humanity and our sin and an ability to save ourselves. And He sends His own righteousness. He sends His own Son, Jesus. And the penalty that you and I deserve, Jesus became the propitiation for our sins. He became the payment. He took the penalty that God justly should pour out upon us. He took the place of that. 
He bore it all, even the sins previously committed. How did an Old Testament saint get forgiven before God? Jesus paid for their sins at Calvary. He saved up even the wrath that, that was should have been poured out on Old Testament saints and upon Christ. All of that was poured out so that God now can be both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus is the only way. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Him. You're not saved this evening by your works or by even your confession, by your religion, by your being here tonight. You're only saved by coming to the Redeemer who can truly restore, who can truly forgive. I know many of you have done that. I thank God for my salvation this evening. But I beg, if you're here and you've never, you've never fallen under the conviction of your sin and confessed it before God and then turned to the Redeemer and find that He can restore you, goodness, the invitation is for you tonight. Turn to Him and find you the God who, who, who delights in saving sinners and gave Jesus so that you might be no matter what you've done, Christ's blood atones for it. Turn. Turn to Him and find life. Find salvation. I got to visit with Miss Billy Gerard this past week again. And Master, many of you know her. She's a godly, godly older woman. Been in our church a long, long while, but many of you have come. Been part of the colonies for a, a good while now. But her, her body is failing her more and more every day. And even her mind now is, is starting to fail her a little bit more every every day. And she'd talk a little bit to me about some of the struggles she's going through, but not much. Um, she, with what the Bible would call joy inexpressible and full of glory, smile on her face, just loves to talk to me about the fact that she's amazed at, at God and at Jesus and the way God's used her in her life. And she said, just a little old nobody like me and the things God's done in my life how He changed my life and how He used me even to reach others for Jesus' name's sake. And she, she said these words. She said, I just love and, and find my life story even in that song. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene who, who loved me, a, a sinner condemned unclean. The love of God for you is amazing. How marvelous, how wonderful. And my song shall ever be, how marvelous, how wonderful. My Savior's love for me. Do you know that tonight? Are you even reading this again and looking at the Gospel again, trying to have that song in your heart? That I just stand amazed in the presence of Christ. For nobody could love me a sinner condemned unclean. May tonight, I, I pray, just be a refreshing evening to renew you in that grace in which you stand if you don't know it. And as I've said already, if you don't, goodness, I pray, respond to this invitation even as we close in prayer now. Uh, come forward and talk to me. Uh, I'd love to share with you how you can know Christ as Lord and Savior tonight. Heaven and Father, we come to you, Lord, and we do pray you work in this moment. Lord, may every believer just be renewed, refreshed in the grace in which we stand to be reminded of your goodness fact that you've redeemed us through Jesus, that you've restored us, that there is a joy, a joy inexpressible and full of glory that ought to fill our hearts each and every day, no matter what we're going through, no matter how charged the struggle is in this broken life, that there is an eternal glory, an eternal hope, a joy that this world can't take away. Lord, if there be one here who doesn't know you, I pray even now.